0: And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. Unfortunately, my colleague Tracy Alloway is out again this week, so it's just going to be me. And I'm going to be uh, talking again kind of about the broader crypto world, but I think a really interesting, different story this time. So listeners might remember that in 2017... During the last cryptocurrency boom, when Bitcoin was taking off, there were all these uh, follow- on coin offerings. And beyond just that, beyond just other coins, there were all these ideas about how different industries could be transformed via blockchain technology in some way or tokens or their own cryptocurrencies. And there were stories about putting banana trade on the blockchain with a currency and dentistry having its own currency. and all kinds of weird things that uh, never really took off. Tomatoes, there was a famous story about putting the tomato trade on the blockchain. Anyway, none of that has really taken off. And at the time when a lot of this was going on, I thought a lot of these um, uh, endeavors were kind of cynical, just uh, attempting to cash in on the hot market for coins in general without much purpose. But some of the projects actually did did seem uh, sincere. And today we're going to be talking about one such project uh, that did sincerely try to solve an interesting problem, and that problem was journalism. And so the question was, could this technology, could a currency somehow help build a sustainable uh, journalism business model in some way that uh, existing subscri- subscriptions or existing uh, uh, models weren't capturing uh, well or weren't doing a good job of? So very excited about our guest. We're g- I'm going to be speaking with uh, Maria Bustillos. She's the founding editor of Popula. She has a new endeavor called the Brick House Co-op. But several years ago, she was a uh, co-founder of a project called Civil, which uh, attempted to create a new journalism business model and in part using its own cryptocurrency. We're going to be talking about what she learned from that project. And the sort of potential and limits of the technology should be very interesting discussion for both people interested in uh, finance and markets and how markets create incentives, but also journalism and uh, journalism business models. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring in uh, Maria. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real
1: pleasure to be here, Joe.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting your uh, story, but it it, it it's always I've been following you in your career on Twitter from afar for a long time. We've never talked before, but it's, it's always seemed interesting. And you seem to have an inclination to experiment and try new things and be open-minded about new ideas in a way that strikes me as kind of rare for this industry, to be honest. But I'm just sort of curious your background first, You know uh, how you got into journalism and how you got interested then in the sort of world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology.
1: Um well I am kind of a, a serial entrepreneur really I started my, my first business when I was in my early 20s as a as a designer of like uh, overpriced tchotchkes for the home and mm. and then I sold that and um opened a kind of like a proto Etsy in 1998 like I was always really interested in the internet computers I I met my husband on Prodigy you know so I kind of came at Journalism from an interest in the internet, and you know how a long time interest in sort of research and writing and and entrepreneurial stuff, and my husband's a Wall Street guy, so um, there was a lot of business in our in our house business talk, and that's kind of how i how I approached it to start with. but I mean, you know, I love sort of literature and and, and blogs and uh, I wound up going to um see that terrible movie avatar with my husband and I just hated it so much. And I just came home and banged out this like absolute screed about how awful it was and sent it to my favorite blog, to Corey Sika and he printed it and that became my job <laughs> like 11 years ago. Almost.
0: That's awesome. I love, I love stories like that. I feel like so many of the most interesting people in media came at it from some uh, angle where they didn't originally intend to be in journalism, but then all these new tools opened up and they realized they could write and they're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And that's a that's a pretty great story.
1: I love it. I, I like this is my favorite job by far. And there's there's a lot of work to do in it. So I've been really fortunate to be at the forefront of some really interesting projects.
0: So let's talk about civil and this civil, you could describe it, but it got a lot of attention from the sort of like media world, media. The media world's always obsessed with like media business models and sustainable journalism and who's going to pay for journalism and, you know, understandable and uh, why there's so much concern. But uh, talk to me about that project. When was it conceived and sort of what was the problem you were trying to solve?
1: Well, uh, the f- interesting thing is I had been really interested in founding a blockchain-based journalism uh, publishing platform like before Civil contacted me. It was like this really weird coincidence, you know, because I had been interested in Bitcoin and, and blockchain technology from very shortly after it started, you know, maybe 2010, 2011, I started looking into it. Hmm. And um, I wrote about Bitcoin for the first time in 2013. Uh, for the, the New Yorker blog, I was, you know, people all thought it was very weird at that point. And I mean, it is really weird. But the thing it's is still it always, weird, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, what interested me about it always was, here is a way to produce incorruptible records and they cannot be altered. And I have a very big interest in archiving in general. And so I kind of still see that as the most valuable aspect of blockchain technology, that's what you know, people talk about applying it to voting, they talk about applying it to cold chain, you know, supply chain, like all this stuff. What they're really talking about is that they're incorruptible records or unfalsifiable records because they're distributed. So when you kind of apply that idea to journalism very separately from the idea of a currency or a token, it it looks different, right? It's like this is a way to record things. I was really fortunate you know, as civil to be the first person ever to commit the full text of a news story directly into the Ethereum blockchain. This was like really important, right? This isn't IPFS or some other kind of corruptible distributed right. thing. This is like it cannot be changed until you you basically have to shut off the internet once you have recorded something in the Ethereum blockchain. It's now on what like you know a, a fluctuating number of computers, but tens of thousands of computers there's always going to be a record of it. Kind of like there used to be microfiche records of newspapers. It's very similar to that. You can't can't falsify them. I like wrote about uh, Barack Obama's birth records, you know, like really there was an unfalsifiable microfiche in Hawaii. If that had not existed, it would have given a lot more oxygen to the birther movement, but there were unfalsifiable records in that library. And so I kind of view what, Blockchain can do for journalism is being related to that Hmm. So I I'd been looking for a way To uh, you know kind of instantiate these ideas and and then I got this phone call like just out of the clear blue from um, Josh benson of old town media Who had been consulting for civil and what it was it was a, a consensus funded Project, I mean at that point, you know end of 2017 the price of Ethereum got to 1400, I think at the end of that year. And so it would go down, you know, between that point and the bottom I think was 66. So consensus was very flush with cash money and they were throwing it around at a lot of projects that were, you know, sort of had a social, uh, you know, component of some kind, you know, or, a there's yeah. some do better stuff, you know. There's like they they just had unlimited money and they were handing it out. And so this is
0: con- Consensus. So this is yeah. one of the um one of the original sort of co founders of the Ethereum project. Started a company called Consensus, which I think characterizes itself as a development studio for Ethereum projects. And as part of it, they fund various endeavors. Uh, designed to build something atop the network.
1: Yes, Joe Lubin, um, you know, funded civil directly. And I think it was originally like 5 million or something like that. It right. was a you know really substantial investment. And so, you know, there was money in it and it was the idea that I wanted to work on. And I'm like, oh my God, they're like, we want to start a blockchain-based project. I'm like, sit down, let me tell you what we're going to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really fun. And a lot of the ideas in it are, I haven't changed my mind about any of it really, but Mm. what happened is that the crypto winter came and, you know, kind of why, well, you know, regulators didn't like all these ICOs, you know, there started, there started being a lot of money raised in those markets. And I mean, I don't know. I know that this is maybe a slightly crazy idea, but I, I think that, Regulators watching those markets swell up, you know, and seeing like an actual direct threat to the regular capital markets, you know, started paying a lot of attention. And suddenly it became, you know, very difficult to do an ICO. You, you know,
0: you say direct threat to capital markets. A cynic might say a bunch of people got fleeced on some of these huge things because the projects were always sort of. That is
1: 100 percent true.
0: Um, you know, some of these mega ones never really took off, extraordinary amount of money raised, extraordinary amount of short-term speculation, mm-hmm. assets that by many accounts look like traditional security uh, regulations whose purpose exists to protect investors, in theory, mm-hmm. uh, lost a ton of money.
1: 100% true. There, I mean, and go past that. There was like scams galore, right? Right. right. Like, there's also scams galore. in the fiat market, so you know, it's kind true. of- <laughs> I mean, people
0: forget this, you know. But so, like, this is what I was saying in the intro, which is that at the time, you know, I was like, there there struck me as a lot of projects that had no purpose other than to cash in on the hot, hot market. And when Sybil launched and seeing the participation of people like yourself and other sort of like longtime, um, veterans of the media industry. It has had a pretty impressive roster. It did not look to me like a sort of get rich quick thing by any stretch. And so that's why it at least seemed different than all these other projects. And so, like, what was the premise? Because it wasn't actually putting content on the blockchain, right?
1: Well, it was for me. I mean, there's one thing, right? There's a number of things that you can do with this technology. Like, for example, you know, comments. Yeah. You can like I, I actually built this with the last of my civil money because I was just so interested in it, at Popula. it was a popular, which tiny, tiny little laboratory, but still it works, you know. You can only put a comment on a popular story if you're a paying subscriber and it costs five cents worth of ETH to do that. And what this does is make zero spam. You don't have to have any kind hmm. of it like that's just one thing. There's a hundred things like this that you can do with it, right? But the way it was supposed to work was the token. It was an ERC token, which is like sort of you know sort. Ethereum is kind of like programmable currency, right? It, it's it's like Bitcoin that you can put code to it, and so you you have a token that is specific to a certain uh, project or set of properties or people or whatever. You can you can yeah. program it to be for one purpose. Now. If you have like a, a journalism denominated token, let's say you have to purchase subscriptions using the token. You have to do your comments using the token. You have to like, it, you, you create like an economic world um, that's denominated in this token. And so, you know, what I like, I was really excited about things like microtipping. This was like right. a huge, huge thing for me. Microtipping is still huge. And we can do this up popular right now. But I mean, very few people have ETH. Right. So I mean, at the same time that this whole thing is happening, the market is contracting. You know, there was uh, there were there were some regulatory blows that were well, the one fatal one, I think, was when FinCEN decided, it tightened the rules for what counted as a money transfer business. Like what it sort of meant was if I were to tip, you know. Popula writer in ETH and Popula is holding that ETH for the writer. I'm now I'm I'm now a money transfer, right? Potentially now it costs three million dollars a year to get licensed for that Like in in all 50 states because it's like a state regulated thing and so they they made it Impossible for these projects to be viable and you know, and it kind of all goes hand in glove You know the price is crashing the confidence is you know, eroding and all this stuff kind of happened at the same time. But what it was supposed to do is stuff like that is like, make it, make it possible to do like frictionless micro tipping really, really cheap. Well,
0: so I want to actually, before you go any further, I want to ask about that point specifically, because the idea of sort of micro payments for content, for journalism, people have, have fantasized about this for a while. And from what I understand, and I've never been directly involved in any of these projects, but from what I understand, the issue is never really, I mean, maybe the issue is partly the cost. But also the issue is sort of the mental cost. Do I want to think about doing a transaction every time I make a comment or load an article or whatever? Like that is sort of like a mental tax. And when I think about doing that in a cryptocurrency, which is already like 10 times more complicated. It's like, okay, I'm going to like pay an ETH. And now I have to check the ETH to US dollar exchange rate. And I have to have like my separate, like, okay, I'm going to have to go buy some ETH. And then I have to convert that into the civil token. And I have to hold that into a wallet. And I need to remember my password for the wallet. And if I don't, then all that money is gone. It always struck me as like, all right, so we've taken all of the uh, difficulties of micropayments, which we know are enormous. And added about five different complicated, uncomfortable layers on top of it. So tell me why my that perception is wrong because that's my outside perception of the challenge here.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's you can do it today and it's really easy uh, with a MetaMask wallet that just sits in your browser. I, and this was envisioned right when we started. MetaMask was like well on its way. You can do MetaMask on mobile. This now. is a
0: bro- MetaMask is a browser-based ethereum wallet right that allows yes. you to hold ethereum and any ethereum-based tokens such as the civil token
1: and when we started the idea was well by that time you'll be able to buy eth with a credit card it'll take five seconds right you know and so but i mean right now if you just if you if you get through the hoops which is like roughly like opening a bank account you know to open a crypto account at you know coinbase or yeah whatever You have to show them, you know, picture ID and all that kind of junk, but you know, you, you can buy Ethereum and you can put it in your browser and it's just always there. So you don't actually have to think about anything But like my theory of it was, I had this moment when we were in development and I read this really good story that Frank Rich had written about the history of his, his career, you know, he's at New York magazine or something. And I I got to the end and he has really meant a lot to me in my career. I think he's such a wonderful Hmm. writer. And so, um, I got to the end of this thing, and I thought, if I could send this guy fifty dollars right now, just so he knows, you know what he just as a t- as a way of saying i I appreciate this piece, like you've done so much for me, <laughs> I don't know. I would send it. And so I thought, this is gonna work, right? There's this moment of passion at the end, like after you hear the song or whatever after you read the story that your heart opens to the idea of contributing to that person's welfare directly. I I think it's very important. And so you can do that right now at Popula Um, using a MetaMask wallet. It it really, once you set it up, it it takes five seconds. It doesn't interfere with you in any way. You just click two buttons, all the exchange and all that stuff is handled in a very smooth, seamless, very simple way. Just say, you want to do it in dollars. You want to send $50. It just automatically does the ETH transfer whatever price it's at, at that point. And, uh, considering the, the problems that they were getting this thing started, it's remarkably simple right now. So, but I mean, you know, people are afraid of it and I mean, with good reason, they should be careful just like they should be careful with their regular money, just like they should be careful not to let their credit card number be stolen. I mean, these are problems that exist in all of every economic transaction. You know, if there is a store of value that somebody can seize, they will do it, and in the case of crypto, you can seize someone's assets with a very little risk of being caught. Although there is that risk has increased substantially, right. so um, I, I'm still a big believer in all these in all these principles. It's just uh, not a way to do it now.
0: Why not dollar? Like if I go to if I see like this is it's this is still I guess you know if it's about tipping so. You know, I think we want to if we sort of decompose the question of how the technology could be applied to journalism. There's the first thing that you've described, uh, which is super powerful to me, the idea of creating a truly permanent record. And as you say, if you have like a sufficient network of enough computers, enough hash power, you could inscribe something onto the blockchain as you have done or onto a blockchain um, that really like cannot ever be tampered with. And that's pretty powerful. When it comes to something like tipping, it could be done with dollars. I mean, Venmo exists. I get, you know, that's a mobile thing. But right, like the the Apple Pay exists. Uh, What is the idea by which a cryptocurrency solves this problem and creates new incentives for journalism business models that didn't exist?
1: We've seen many attempts at micro tipping. They never took off because the transaction costs were too high you know, the tips at Popula, I mean, we've only taken, you know, a few, they're fewer than a thousand so far, but like they're quite often like 10 cents, you know, 25 cents, which would be great. Right. If, uh, if there were a way to do that, the all these other technologies didn't work out because they, they, you know, became uh, keeping track of the transactions. It's right. very bloated. This is a great thing that crypto or, you know, really blockchain technology can do. It's like it re- removes the overhead and creates like a, bulletproof audit trail for every transaction you can have a quite complicated system where people are leaving each other 10 and 25 cents you know and it's it doesn't create any uh sort of accounting overhead at all it's all done automatically so that's like a huge thing but like the other thing is you know that system i have right now if you write a comment and you pay your five cents and you write your comment that comment is also eligible for tips the idea is to create an economy of discourse
0: so here here's something i wondered okay let's let's talk a little bit more about the civil structure and how it's supposed to work and so the idea was it was going to be this token offering and tell me if i'm wrong but this was my impression from the outside there was this token offering that was going to raise some money then that was going to fund a series of newsrooms. There were like sort of multiple journalism endeavors under the civil umbrella. Mm-hmm. And then that token uh, would be used to a fund the newsrooms and then people would have that and they could. Um... Then what happens from there? Like what, what is the purpose of the token after the sort of fundraise to get the journal, uh, the initial see, see the journalism? What is its purpose there and how why, and why would it go up or down at that point? Like what makes it fluctuate?
1: Okay, so th- there were multiple projects going on at the same time. There was a token curated registry. Have you heard of this?
0: Yeah, but only kind of, so maybe explain that.
1: Okay, so they I was not in favor of having this be the first project, but it was the first project at Civil, and what it was supposed to do is actually determine who was allowed to publish. Ah. Um, and, and it was supposed to be like the community itself is sort of this self-policing thing. There was like a a civil code of conduct is like, it was actually pretty good. I helped them work on it. Um, A bunch of us did. It it was like, you know, no plagiarism and make your best efforts to verify what you print and all this kind of stuff. And the idea was the community would cause new, new applicants to come in and stake a certain amount of tokens. And then people would decide between themselves whether or not this person is okay. And, you know, the sort of like they, like an entrance fee or whatever that is then sort of held by the company. But if people want to complain, then they have to stake tokens and they say, like, oh, you I know, see. you're a neo Nazi, whatever. And so, like, I'm going to stake these tokens and vote you out. And so, like, if there's, it's kind of like a, a voting situation, but you vote with the token. And so you, you allow people into the network or you, you throw them out, you know, based on this sort of token governance system. Um, there have been many attempts at token curated registry before civil happened and they have all failed because you know i think the idea is not without merit but it is not ready for prime time by any means it depends on you know a, a large group of people having enough overhead to pay attention to the rules and to sit there and vet this is work you know vetting a newsroom deciding right. whether or not they've committed plagiarism or whether or not they're adhering to this code of conduct however simple it is a bunch of people have to sit there and and you know Spend valuable time looking at some bozo's website. You know, it was insanity. So um, I I was bummed about that. But I mean, but the idea, the premise was, is that
0: there are all these contentious fights that happen online all the time. Is this tweet misleading? Is this Facebook post a lie? Is this hate speech, etc.? And the hope. Was that if there were some sort of monetary stake involved in the debate. Exactly. That that could resolve these questions in an agreeable way for the community.
1: Exactly. And even the right to the right to publish itself, you know, was contingent. You know, the the thing is, I took a lot of civil tokens as a um, as compensation for this thing. You know, the idea and the way that the. ICOs were going when we first started looking into this. It was a great bet, you know, because like any Ethereum token was going to like, I was was having a ball, you know. Right. um, And I just like to roll the dice. But I mean, I believed in it hugely. I still do. Because the thing is, if you have a, a, you don't really need to call it a token, right? But if you have a community like like that that is linked in its, and it's within its economy is interlinked all the participants have a stake in what is going on and it's a frictionless way of recording things that happen, that would be great for this industry. It would still be great. The The problem is how to make those principles um, attainable within the current frameworks that we have. And they're not right now.
0: You know, something I was thinking about. So like when I first got into Writing, I just started as you know, blogging and I just like set up a uh, I don't know, I think it was like 2005 and I set up a type pad account and I just started blogging and you know, just for the fun of it. You know, when you mention like these tips of like sometimes just a few pennies or 10 cents or 25 cents, like does that ever sort of I don't know, I could see that having a negative effect because here you are thinking like I'm just doing, you know, I kind of wanted to do it for the fun of it, and then it's like, oh great. I got 75 cents, which is really not that much money for a thing. It's like, that's what it's worth to people. Like I would, it, it doesn't, it seems like that would be perhaps even though it is technically some sort of compensation that that might have a sort of deterring or demoralizing effect. It's like, that's it.
1: <laughs> well, that's a very mercenary Joe.
0: <laughs> no, but it's like, well, I'm saying like, once you establish the idea, like, like, it's one thing if you're just like, I want to, like, be part of the conversation. This looks fun. I want to blog. I want to write my take on a movie that I just saw. I want to take down an article that I read in the New York Times and write. want to write a thing debunking it. You're a great blogger. Well, those, you know, that's, like, what I felt, like, motivated. And then it's, like, you introduce the idea of, like, okay, I'm going to join this network or be part of this network of, and there's going to be some compensation. And then people, like, send a few tips and they come out to a dollar fifty. It's like I would rather just sort of—I don't know—I feel like that would be a less. I—I I feel like that would be a counter motivator.
1: Well, I don't know. i, I disagree. I dig okay. it. It's—it's it's sort of like a when if somebody comments favorably on your work with no money attached to it. It's—I find that pleasurable. The idea that somebody's reading it, yeah, is pleasurable to me. And you know, Well I agree completely. I
0: mean, that would, to me like that's the
1: fun part. Right. So you have that plus this other thing. That's just a goofball thing, right? Yeah. But I mean what what people are really doing is uh entering into a dialogue with you. It's had a little money attached to it. That's fine, it's fun, it's good.
0: So, you know, I you mentioned that uh, then I want to sort of talk about your new project in a second. But you mentioned that at the time that you got this going and Civil launched its token at the time, it was still like all these tokens were just flying to the moon and making a fortune. And it was probably like a good bet to hold on to them. Do you think actually you were penalized in part because it was a serious project designed to solve a serious problem and not the sort of, get rich quick scheme slash scam that other people are running
1: oh no not a bit i really? mean yeah no i think it was we were just one of uh, this huge constellation of projects in the consensus universe yeah. they were starting so many things at once because this huge amount of wealth had just ballooned like right. so fast and so the seriousness or otherwise of a project was like the absolute least consideration, you know, it's kind of like, just there's, look at all this millions of things that we all have to run to do this as quickly as we can. Yeah. You know, if, I mean, probably if civil had ICO'd like, you know, and it's six months earlier. earlier? Yeah. yeah. It would be really, we'd be looking at a real different story. I don't really quite know how exactly, but it wouldn't be like this.
0: Let's talk about what you're up to now. So, I mean, this is a pretty interesting time in uh, journalism because there actually does seem to be the emergence of sort of sustainable subscription business models with normal fiat money being used. Uh, We see a lot of journalists this year having uh, launched their own newsletters on services like Substack and actually, in some cases, making decent livings. Uh, A number of sort of independent outlets have gone hard uh, paywall. Uh, The Athletic is a sports thing. There's a bunch of different people uh, writing about the local sports team. They seem to be doing well, and people are showing a willingness to pay for uh, media in a way that a few years ago, there seemed to be a lot more doubts about. So that's encouraging. So talk to us about sort of, what you've learned uh, from that and how you see your current endeavor fitting into this uh, new media landscape, which seems to have some space open to it for uh, paid subscriptions for
1: journalists. Yeah, it's really exciting. Well, this kind of came out of Civil, really, because there were a group of us publishers who really believed in this sort of cooperative model that we've been working on at Civil, where basically the token was supposed to be the vehicle by which we were sustaining each other's work and, and it was a really cooperative idea so you had all these publishers after civil broke up and we were thinking okay that was a little too far out apparently but like let's let's put these ideas to work using a more uh, conventional cooperative model and so we studied cooperatives and um there's a bakery here in oakland called Arismendi that has like an interesting cooperative structure uh, there's cooperatives in barcelona And so we put together this really novel sort of business model with a friend of mine in Cleveland, who's a a business attorney. And um, I really love it. It's like each each publisher, there's nine of us in my new venture. um, It's called the Brick Brick House, and it's totally flat organizational structure. Tom Skoka, who is one of the publishers in it, and I were talking Mm -hmm. about what are we going to we got to make a a thing that just can't be blown down by outside forces. And that was kind of how the name came up. So, um, because we both worked for outlets that were like demolished by, you know, one way or another, like the sort of business craziness storms that have happened throughout journalism. And it's like, okay, let's just try something of our own on a small scale. That's absolutely uh, free of um, the outside influences of advertisers or owners or executives or anything. There's, no, there's nothing in this thing but um, editors and publishers. And there's nine, um, nine of us, and each of us has one share. You, you buy one share for $1, and all you can do with it is sell it back to the company for a dollar. So this yeah. company is capitalized with $9. And so it's an LLC, but it runs according to an operating agreement where we share subscribers and revenues and expenses according to certain formulas. And there's a board of directors, and and then we have an advisory council of like industry leaders in case there's stuff that we can't agree on. And so we worked really, really, really hard on the structure of this thing, because, you know, I I was in the courtroom when Gawker was taken down, uh, the Hulk Hogan trial. Yeah, and I was covering it for Death and Taxes, which is also no more. <laughs> but <laughs> But I mean, we did not realize what was going on when that thing happened. It was just really shocking, right, that when you had wow. William Rehnquist saying, you know, in the 80s, defending the right of Larry Flint to say in his magazine that Jerry Falwell had incest in an outhouse, you know, like First Amendment principles of the press seem to me to be absolutely ironclad. when. Right. William Rehnquist was defending that. It seemed impossible to me that Gawker would be closed down for publishing this tiny little bit of like security camera footage of Hulk Hogan having sex. It's just like, yeah, it's offensive to people, but it's that's, that's protected, right? right? Anyway, it did not work out. And so it was really shocking. And it took us a really long time to discover that it was, you know, Peter Thiel had bankrolled dozens of you know a lot of lawsuits with a view to taking this this organization down and he finally got lucky with his judge and and so i was like wow you know one person can demolish the livelihoods of hundreds of people and remove the reading material for millions of people because he was offended by something and so i thought that it's just terrifying you know it's terrifying that many shut something like this off and it really motivated me a lot to figure out how to how to protect Hmm. the you know speech rights and press freedom and so that's a lot where this comes from there's not a way for anybody to come in and buy it out we're not relying on any billionaires to put the bills it's like i don't know it, it may it may succeed or it may fail but at least we're trying and it's really fun and we've got a really great um group of publishers and uh, we're raising some money in a kickstarter building a simple version of it and we'll see where it goes
0: so where should people uh, check out to learn more
1: kickstarter or you just go to if you go to google and type in brick house kickstarter you'll you'll see it at the top there's a lot more detail there uh, ben smith interviewed me at the new york times about it and i wrote a piece about it the columbia journalism review that explains the details we're probably like At the current pace, I think we'll be publishing at the end of October. Well, I really appreciate you
0: uh, joining me for this. Um, It's really cool. I think, um, you know, your sort of uh, your appetite to try new things and experiment and see things like uh, civil not work out, but then just move on and sort of try a new experiment is uh, really cool and refreshing. And I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, Brickhouse goes. and. You know, obviously, still a lot of uncertainty in this industry about how people are going to get paid and how many people will get paid. So it feels like the more projects, the better.
1: Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. it was so much fun talking. I could yell about crypto all
0: day long. Yeah, it's great to finally meet you and uh, good luck.
1: Thank you so much. All right.
0: Take care, Maria. Uh, well, there you go. Um, I you know I think it's super interesting. Like I said in the beginning, I guess I viewed a lot of the projects back in the ICO crypto mania of 2017, 2018 Is kind of cynical, and then I became cynical about them, and uh, I'm still cynical about them. And even in twenty twenty with this new sort of crypto boom, I'm still sort of uh, super skeptical of them all. But uh, I did really like hearing the inside story of one of them. So. Looking forward to checking out how uh, Maria's current project uh, goes. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Uh, Follow my co-host, Tracy Alloway. She's on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Our guest, Maria Bustillos. She's at Maria Bustillos. Check out her uh, project, Brick House, on Kickstarter. Uh, Follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson, the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And of course, you can check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening.